Section two of Chapter twenty five of A History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty five, Section two. Some years before, while the war was still raging, there had been loud complaints in the city that even privateers of St. Malo's and Dunkirk caused less molestation to trade than another class of marauders. The English navy was fully employed in the Channel, in the Atlantic, and in the Mediterranean. The Indian Ocean, meanwhile, swarmed with pirates of whose rapacity and cruelty frightful stories were told many of these men it was said came from our north american colonies and carried back to those colonies the spoils gained by crime adventurers who durst not show themselves in the thames found a ready market for their ill-gotten spices and stuffs at new york even the Puritans of New England, who in sanctimonious austerity surpassed even their brethren of Scotland, were accused of conniving at the wickedness which enabled them to enjoy abundantly and cheaply the produce of Indian looms and Chinese tea plantations. In 1695, Richard Coote, Earl of Bellamont, an Irish peer who sat in the English House of Commons, was appointed governor of New York and Massachusetts. He was a man of eminently fair character, upright, courageous, and independent. Though a decided Whig, he had distinguished himself by bringing before the Parliament at Westminster some tyrannical acts done by Whigs at Dublin, and particularly the execution if it is not rather to be called the murder of Gaffney. Before Bellamont sailed for America, William spoke strongly to him about the freebooting which was the disgrace of the colonies. I send you, my lord, to New York, he said, because an honest and intrepid man is wanted to put these abuses down, and I believe you to be such a man. Bellamont exerted himself to justify the high opinion which the king had formed of him. It was soon known at New York that the governor who had just arrived from England was bent on the suppression of piracy, and some colonists in whom he placed great confidence suggested to him what they may perhaps have thought the best mode of attaining that object. There was then in the settlement a veteran mariner named William Kidd. He had passed most of his life on the waves, had distinguished himself by his seamanship, had had opportunities of showing his valour in action with the French, and had retired on a competence. No man knew the eastern seas better. He was perfectly acquainted with all the haunts of the pirates, who prowled between the Cape of Good Hope and the Straits of Malacca, and he would undertake, if he were entrusted with a single ship of thirty or forty guns, 
to clear the Indian Ocean of the whole race. The brigantines of the rovers were numerous, no doubt, but none of them was large. One man of war, which in the Royal Navy would hardly rank as a fourth-rate, would easily deal with them all in succession, and the lawful spoils of the enemies of mankind would much more than defray the charges of the expedition. Bellamont was charmed with this plan, and recommended it to the king. The king referred it to the admiralty. The admiralty raised difficulties, such as are perpetually raised by public boards when any deviation, whether for the better or for the worse, from the established course of proceeding is proposed. It then occurred to Bellamont that his favourite scheme might be carried into effect without any cost to the state. A few public-spirited men might easily fit out a privateer which would soon make the Arabian Gulf and the Bay of Bengal secure highways for trade. He wrote to his friends in England, imploring, remonstrating, complaining of their lamentable want of public spirit. Six thousand pounds would be enough. The sum would be repaid, and repaid with large interest from the sale of prizes, and an inestimable benefit would be conferred on the kingdom and on the world. His urgency succeeded. Shrewsbury and Romsey contributed. Orford, though as First Lord of the Admiralty, he had been unwilling to send Kidd to the Indian Ocean with a king's ship, consented to subscribe a thousand pounds. Summers subscribed another thousand. A ship called the Adventure Galley was equipped in the port of London, and Kidd took the command. He carried with him, besides the ordinary letters of Mark, a commission under the great seal empowering him to seize pirates and to take them to some place where they might be dealt with according to law. Whatever right the king might have to the goods found in the possession of these malefactors, he granted by letters patent to the person who had been at the expense of fitting out the expedition, reserving to himself only one-tenth part of the gains of the adventure, which was to be paid into the treasury. With the claim of merchants to have back the property of which they had been robbed, His Majesty, of course, did not interfere. He granted away, and could grant away, no rights but his own. The press for sailors to man the Royal Navy was at that time so hot that Kidd could not obtain his full complement of hands in the Thames. He crossed the Atlantic, visited New York, and there found volunteers in abundance. At length, in February 1697, he sailed from the Hudson with a crew of more than a hundred and fifty men, and in July reached the coast of Madagascar. It is possible that Kidd may at first have meant to act in accordance with his instructions. But on the subject of piracy, he held the notions which were then common in the North American colonies, and most of his crew were of the same mind. He found himself in a sea, which was constantly traversed by rich and defenceless merchant ships. 
and he had to determine whether he would plunder those ships or protect them. The gain which might be made by plundering them was immense, and might be snatched without the dangers of a battle or the delays of a trial. The rewards of protecting the lawful trade were likely to be comparatively small. Such as they were, they would be got only by first fighting with desperate ruffians, who would rather be killed than taken and by then instituting a proceeding and obtaining a judgment in a court of admiralty. The risk of being called to a severe reckoning might not unnaturally seem small to one who had seen many old buccaneers living in comfort and credit at New York and Boston. Kidd soon threw off the character of a privateer and became a pirate. He established friendly communications and exchanged arms and ammunition with the most notorious of those rovers whom his commission authorized him to destroy, and made war on those peaceful traders whom he was sent to defend. He began by robbing Musulmans, and speedily proceeded from Musulmans to Armenians, and from Armenians to Portuguese. The adventure gallery took such quantities of cotton and silk, sugar and coffee, cinnamon and pepper, that the very foremast men received from a hundred to two hundred pounds each, and that the captain's share of the spoil would have enabled him to live at home as an opulent gentleman. With the rapacity, Kidd had the cruelty of his odious calling. He burned houses. He massacred peasantry. His prisoners were tied up and beaten with naked cutlasses in order to extort information about their concealed hordes. One of his crew, whom he had called a dog, was provoked into exclaiming in an agony of remorse, Yes, I am a dog, but it is you that have made me so. Kid, in a fury, struck the man dead. News then travelled very slowly from the eastern seas to England. But in August 1698 it was known in London that the adventure galley, from which so much had been hoped, was the terror of the merchants of Surat and the villagers of the coast of Malabar. It was thought probable that Kidd would carry his booty to some colony. Orders were therefore sent from Whitehall, to the governors of the transmarine possessions of the crown, directing them to be on the watch for him. He, meanwhile, having burned his ship and dismissed most of his men, who easily found berths in the sloops of other pirates, returned to New York with the means, as he flattered himself, of making his peace and living in splendor. He had fabricated a long romance to which Bellamont, naturally unwilling to believe that he had been duped and had been the means of duping others was at first disposed to listen with favour but the truth soon came out the governor did his duty firmly and kidd was placed in close confinement till orders arrived from the admiralty that he should be sent to england to an intelligent and candid judge of human actions, 
it will not appear that any of the persons at whose expense the adventure galley was fitted out deserved serious blame the worst that could be imputed even to bellamont who had drawn in all the rest was that he had been led into a fault by his ardent zeal for the public service and by the generosity of a nature as little prone to suspect as to devise villainies his friends in england might surely be pardoned for giving credit to his recommendation it is highly probable that the motive which induced some of them to aid his design was genuine public spirit but if we suppose them to have had a view to gain it was to legitimate gain their conduct was the very opposite of corrupt not only had they taken no money they had dispersed money largely and had dispersed it with the certainty that they should never be reimbursed unless the outlay proved beneficial to the public that they meant well they proved by staking thousands on the success of their plan and if they erred in judgment the loss of those thousands was surely a sufficient punishment for such an error on this subject there would probably have been no difference of opinion had not Summers been one of the contributors. About the other patrons of Kidd, the chiefs of the opposition cared little. Bellamont was far removed from the political scene. Romney could not, and Shrewsbury would not, play a first part. Orford had resigned his employments, but Summers still held the great seal, still presided in the House of Lords still had constant access to the closet the retreat of his friends had left him the sole and undisputed head of that party which had in the late parliament been a majority and which was in the present parliament outnumbered indeed disorganized and disheartened but still numerous and respectable his placid courage rose higher and higher to meet the dangers which threatened him he provided for himself no refuge he made no move towards flight and without uttering one boastful word gave his enemies to understand by the mild firmness of his demeanour that he dared them to do their worst in their eagerness to displace and destroy him they overreached themselves had they been content to accuse him of lending his countenance with a rashness unbecoming his high place to an ill-concerted scheme that large part of mankind which judges of a plan simply by the event would probably have thought the accusation well founded but the malice which they bore him was not to be so satisfied they affected to believe that he had from the first been aware of kidd's character and designs the great seal had been employed to sanction a piratical expedition the head of the law had laid down a thousand pounds in the hope of receiving tens of thousands when his accomplices should return laden with the spoils of ruined merchants it was fortunate for the chancellor that the calumnies of which he was the object were too atrocious to be mischievous 
and now the time had come at which the hoarded ill-humour of six months was at liberty to explode. On the 16th of November the Houses met. The King, in his speech, assured them in gracious and affectionate language that he was determined to do his best to merit their love by constant care to preserve their liberty and their religion, by a pure administration of justice, by countenancing virtue, by discouraging vice, by shrinking from no difficulty or danger when the welfare of the nation was at stake. These, he said, are my resolutions, and I am persuaded that you are come together with purposes on your part suitable to these on mine. Since then our aims are only for the general good, let us act with confidence in one another, which will not fail by God's blessing to make me a happy king and you a great and flourishing people. It might have been thought that no words less likely to give offence had ever been uttered from the English throne. But even in those words the malevolence of faction sought and found matter for a quarrel. The gentle exhortation, let us act with confidence in one another, must mean that such confidence did not now exist, that the king distrusted the parliament, or that the parliament had shown an unwarrantable distrust of the king. Such an exhortation was nothing less than a reproach, and such a reproach was a bad return for the gold and the blood which England had lavished in order to make and keep him a great sovereign. There was a sharp debate in which Seymour took part. With characteristic indelicacy and want of feeling, he harangued the commons as he had harangued the court of King's Bench about his son's death and about the necessity of curbing the insolence of military men. There were loud complaints that the events of the preceding session had been misrepresented to the public, that emissaries of the court in every part of the kingdom declaimed against the absurd jealousies or still more absurd parsimony which had refused to his majesty the means of keeping up such an army as might secure the country against invasion. Even justices of the peace, it was said, even deputy lieutenants, had used King James and King Lewis as bugbears for the purpose of stirring up the people against honest and thrifty representatives. Angry resolutions were passed, declaring it to be the opinion of the House that the best way to establish entire confidence between the king and estates of realm would be to put a brand on those evil advisers who had dared to breathe in the royal ear calumnies against a faithful parliament. An address founded on these resolutions was voted. Many thought that a violent rupture was inevitable. But William returned an answer so prudent and gentle that malice itself could not prolong the dispute. By this time, indeed, a new dispute had begun. The address had scarcely been moved when the House called for copies of the papers relating to Kidd's expedition. Summers, conscious of innocence, 
knew that it was wise as well as right to be perfectly ingenuous, and resolved that there should be no concealment. His friends stood manfully by him, and his enemies struck at him with such blind fury that their blows injured only themselves. Howe raved like a maniac. What is to become of the country, plundered by land, plundered by sea? Our rulers have laid hold on our lands, our woods, our mines, our money. And all this is not enough. We cannot send a cargo to the farthest ends of the earth, but they must send a gang of thieves after it. Harley and Seymour tried to carry off a vote of censure without giving the House time to read the papers, but the general feeling was strongly for a short delay. At length, on the 6th of December, the subject was considered in a committee of the whole House. Shower undertook to prove that the letters patent to which Summers had put the great seal were illegal. Cowper replied to him with immense applause, and seems to have completely refuted him. Some of the Tory orators had employed what was then a favourite claptrap. Very great men, no doubt, were concerned in this business. But were the commons of England to stand in awe of great men, would not they have the spirit to censure corruption and oppression in the highest places? Cowper answered finally that assuring the House ought not to be deterred from the discharge of any duty by the fear of great men. But that fear was not the only base and evil passion of which great men were the objects, and that the flatterer who courted their favour was not a worse citizen than the envious calumniator who took pleasure in bringing whatever was eminent down to his own level. At length, after a debate which lasted from midday till nine at night, and in which all the leading members took part, the committee divided on the question that the letters patent were dishonourable to the king, inconsistent with the law of nations, contrary to the statutes of the realm, and destructive of property and trade. The Chancellor's enemies had felt confident of victory, and had made the resolution so strong in order that it might be impossible for him to retain the great seal. They soon found that it would have been wise to propose a gentler censure. Great numbers of their adherents, convinced by Cowper's arguments, or unwilling to put a cruel stigma on a man of whose genius and accomplishments the nation was proud, stole away before the door was closed. To the general astonishment there were only one hundred and thirty-three eyes to one hundred and eighty-nine noes. That the city of London did not consider Summers as the destroyer and his enemies as the protectors of trade was proved on the following morning by the most unequivocal of signs. As soon as the news of his triumph reached the Royal Exchange, the price of stocks went up. End of section 2